Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. I'm Jonathan Mingus and joining me today is my co-host Allie Ryder, the administrator of the website casebook.org and managing editor of Ripperologist magazine. And we're welcoming to the show Christopher Holmgren, the author of Cutting Point, Tracy Ionson, author of Jacob the Ripper, Mick Priestley, the author of One Autumn in Whitechapel, Tom Westcott, author of The Bank Holiday Murders and Ripper Confidential, and Steve Blomer, the author of Inside Bucks Row. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you. Glad to be back. Now we're here today to talk about suspectology in the Whitechapel murder case. And as with any dramatic historical event, all of us were likely initially drawn to the Whitechapel murders by what we saw at the time as its base essence. It's being the most famous unsolved murder series in criminal history. But like the study of any other historical drama, many of us over time are individually drawn to specialize in certain areas that are at a distance from that initial base essence. For example, the police force, the politics of the time, the press, the immigrant experience, the treatment of women in Victorian society, and in particular, the poor and destitute and prostitute class. And what happens in this specialization, ripperologists do on an individual level, it contributes to broadening the field. The study of the case, quote unquote, encompasses more social history and ripperology can mean something more and something entirely different than just solving these unsolvable murders. For instance, my interest lies in the social and cultural history and development of the field of ripperology itself and its parallel portrayals in the media, as well as Jack the Ripper in popular culture. And I'm not so much interested in how many children William Thick had. Uh, although I acknowledge that that type of research is useful in adding to the overall picture of the lives of the cast in this historical event. But don't get me wrong, the benchmarks of the field of ripperology remain suspect-oriented. The McNaughton Memoranda, Swanson Marginalia, the writings of police officers such as Dew, Little Child, and Anderson are all foundational to the base, and their merits are still rightly debated to this day. But my take on suspectology is this. For many reasons, which we'll probably get into during the show, the identity of the Whitechapel murderer will never be proven beyond all doubt. As a cold case, there is nothing that can ever point to a definitive killer without the existence of DNA evidence. It is impossible to prove who Jack the Ripper was and how many victims he killed. So in this respect, I would argue that suspectology and its influence in the field of ripperology is rapidly diminishing. Many times, suspectology is a parlor game of pin the tail on the ripper. Because of suspectologists, the press refers to all of ripperology as true crime obsessives and Jack the Ripper enthusiasts and the like. Now, I wouldn't go as far as Colin Wilson, who called it a waste of time, since there's always a chance that nuggets can be discovered that broaden our understanding of the era. But at this point in time, there will never be enough evidence to solve these murders. So after that rant, I'll open it up with this question to our guests. 
many of whom have authored suspect books. How do you view suspectology's place within ripperology and what are its merits? And any one of you can start. Hi, Tracy here. I think the suspectology goes hand in hand with the case because of what the case actually is. Without any actual person being found, then you obviously just will look at potential suspects, potential people who could have done the killings. And it the research from the suspect goes hand in hand with research of other aspects of the case. They all kind of merge into one. So, uh, yeah, I think it does merit suspectology. Regardless of who your suspect is, it could be Jill the Ripper, it could be the aliens, it's still bringing interest to the case and people can then branch off into other aspects of the case. I find the social aspect of Whitechapel quite fascinating, which is something that I never even give a thought before actually starting to research the case more. So I think it's part, it's inherent within a Jack the Ripper case for me personally. It's Steve here. And um, my view is quite straightforward. Suspectology is, as Tracy says, goes hand in glove with the subject, with the subject, but there is a tendency that it can take all of us down blind alleys. And we don't look at things outside of our own chosen suspects or the suspects who we like. On the other hand, doing the initial research can lead other places. I mean, there's some stuff still being done on the recent Edward Buckley stuff. Now, I'm not talking about Edward Buckley himself, but some of the research, some of the stuff that's being turned up by the researchers um, is really interesting in other points. And it may be of interest to myself and to Krista and to Mick, those three in particular, perhaps. Some of the stuff that is coming out which is not directly related to Buckley himself, but it's stuff that they've found. And I think that's one of the, the key points. Finding stuff when we're going down suspectology and we're looking at suspect A and we find something else, which is actually nothing directly to do with suspect A, but actually leads to, uh, to, to other places. Right. And those are the nuggets that I referred to in my little opening rant, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a complete waste of time, and I'm not suggesting no. that. Hi, please uh, comment, Christo here. I uh, I agree that uh, the Buckley material is very interesting in many ways. I would also add to what Steve said that he mentions that it doesn't always have to focus on Buckley himself. Then again, I don't see any problem if it focuses on Buckley himself because he was a man living in Whitechapel during the Ripper murders. Mm. So, of course, his life, the way he, he spent his life, the way he lived his life is per se interesting because it's a portrait of a person living smack bang in the middle of what we are looking at. Then again, of course, as Steve also says, it can lead in other directions. We can find other little nuggets along the way. And I think this has always been the case. If we go back to a man like Martin Fido, for example, he's a much respected researcher. And it's, so he should be because he has really delved very deep into these matters, although he has done it with a focus on a suspect or suspect thinking. 
then again, the term suspect, I think we need to define it because with Buckley, I would say, if we return to him, I wouldn't call him a Jack the Ripper suspect. He belongs to the group that's presented as Jack the Ripper suspects, the 300 plus ones, of course. But is he really a suspect? What is a suspect? We need to define that. There's also the term person of interest. And I would say, personally, for me, Buckley, the research, top-notch, very interesting. Is Buckley a suspect? No. Is Buckley a person of interest? No, I don't think so. I think that would demand that Buckley had some sort of link to either one of the victims or to one of the murder places. So I, I rule him out on both counts, but that doesn't mean he's uninteresting, and it doesn't mean he doesn't couldn't couldn't match many of the the other three hundred ones, most of them easily, of course. I would like to hear um, Mick and Tom's views, but before, if we if we rule out anybody who doesn't have a link to a specific location or a specific victim, then virtually all suspects disappear. So if we narrowing it down to a degree that would only include each own suspect is the sort of blinkered, narrow focus that most people go into when they have a specific theory they're proponing. They want to winnow down the categories and the parameters of what's included to solely fit their idea. But let's be real, at the time, like we have the McNaughton Memorandum that had uh, Druid, Kosminski, Holy cow, my brain right now. Apologies. I did. Ostrog, Ostrog. Thank you. Um, and none of them have a specific and direct tie, and they were considered by the police at the time. So I don't think, like, if, if we're going to talk about suspectology and what the parameters are, we can't narrow it down to that specific degree. But I do want, I would like to hear what Mick and Tom have to think in terms of, of the suspects. Right. And I just wanted to clarify that that I there's a difference between what I refer to as suspectology and individuals being rightly considered a suspect versus a person of interest suspectology is is the this the research into a particular individual with the goal of seeing if he's jack the ripper right it that as opposed to researching white the white chapel murders or other individuals of the white shop involved in the white chapel murders it is the the focus on catching the killer so I, I hope that's clear. Just uh, here again, if I may. Mm -hmm. I, I am not saying that I'm ruling Buckley out. That's not it. I'm, I'm just taking a look at him the way the police would look at people. And they would not consider him a person of interest, nor would they right. consider I agree. I, and I agree with I, that. I, but but I, what I'm saying for the purposes of our discussion today, yeah. uh, Buckley being on the cover of Crime Through Time magazine with Jack the Ripper question mark next to his face 
includes yes. him as yes. the dis yes. overall very, very discussion clear. of suspectology. Yeah, very clearly he's been put forward as a suspect. Yeah. And and I have no problems whatsoever to look and, and, and treat suspectology as whatever anybody, whoever anybody wants to suggest. Although we know we will sooner or later we, we will get to the ridiculous ones, but they will nevertheless be part of the, the phenomenon suspectology. What I want to do is just to take a closer look at how, what is a suspect, what is a person of interest. And I think that that, that must carry weight in, in, in this discussion, although it doesn't rule out, if you want to suggest Santa Claus as Jack the Ripper, he's too, he, he, he too will become part of it of suspectology as such. But I think there needs to be a line drawn somewhere in in the discussion anyway. We, that we must be aware of what we are doing because we are discussing people who would never be police suspects as suspects. And and that terminology becomes a little bit slippery because, because if we put everybody on the same level, I think we, we, we are having some sort of trouble. And and in in that respect, I would agree with what you said that suspectology many times has very little to offer. And there are a lot of people has put forward suspects that I would almost like to pursue with a shotgun because it's really, really bad and it's really, really not linking people to what they're supposed to be linked to. Mick? I think that at this point, as we all know, just about everybody who's alive in the East End or anywhere near at the time has been put forward as a suspect. And I think that I think maybe if it is becoming the whole suspectology thing becoming less of a thing recently, it seems like surely the there can only be so many people left to, to suggest. I think that the majority of suspects put forward uh, of that of the hundreds um, that would come up with a Google search, the overwhelming majority of suspects that get put forward, in my opinion, are absolutely ludicrous. And like uh, like, he, like he just said, that would um, never be considered suspects today. They, they tend to be put forward for some ludicrous, laughable reason, in my opinion, or the author or whoever it is puts them forward, puts them forward on some ridiculous evidence. It's either based not on the police files or things we know about true crime, but on some crazy conspiracy nonsense or whatever. But despite that, I always kind of think that anytime there's another suspect put forward, or it, um, regardless of who it might be or how ridiculous it might sound, anything that kind of gets more people interested in the case and keeps people interested in the case, I suppose kind of gets a, a thumbs up from me. So, yeah, as long as when it's something that I'm so interested in, as long as keep, people keep talking about it, uh, and stay interested in it. I, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily, but I do think that the uh, the Jack the Ripper case does attract a lot of uh, fantasists that uh, other cases tend not to. All right, Tom Westcott here. You know, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I, I do think uh, to go back to Jonathan's opening discussion and some of the points he made, just so they're not missed, as he's talking about, and and I, you can correct me if I'm misstating this, Jonathan, but he's talking about now and currently in the field of ripperology that suspectology is becoming less relevant. 
there is a, you know, I was think as he was talking, it's something occurred to me. And that is recently, you know, we talk about the big books, right, that come out every several years. There's a big book that captures the imagination of the public at large and brings new people to the case. The most recent one that was really big was Hallie Rubin holds The Five. What is unique about that book is it's not it's the first non-suspect book to become a huge cause celeb outside of our our little niche field. Um, probably the first real best true bestseller that's a non-suspect book since Donald Rumbelow's uh, Jack the Ripper, complete Jack the Ripper back in the mid seventies. So, and even then, Rumbelow's was completely overshadowed. Uh, by Stephen Knight's book, which was the big one uh, for that era. Uh, you know, and over the years, we can define the eras of Ripperology by whatever suspect, you know, whether it's the diary or or Tumble Tea, the royal conspiracy theory, Walter Sickert. And the funny thing is, most of these huge books are written by people, you could say, who are outside of Ripperology. Um, mo- many of us were brought into the case through one of these suspects. Uh, I know Stephen Ryder famously uh, became interested in the diary, and that led to Casebook, which created the first online home for Ripperology. It's it's where, you know, most of you I met. Um, and uh, for me, it was a little ugly paperback in a used bookstore that had been misplaced in the horror section. I was looking for horror fiction and I picked this up. Now I didn't know when I picked it up, it was Dr. David, uh, Dr. David Abramson's book, murder and madness about Jack the Ripper. I didn't know Paul Begg had already discerned this to be the worst Jack the Ripper book ever written. I didn't know who Paul Begg was, but I bought it. It was cheap and it wasn't bad to me because it was my first Ripper book. Then it made me want to read more and more. And then I, went to the library and got on the internet. This was the nineties. I didn't have a computer and uh, found casebook. And then the kind of, you know, the rest is it, it literally changed the course of my life. Um, so I don't know, man. Uh, I'll tell you this. The name is Ripperology. What is the, uh, the key word in that, you know, it's not East end or Whitechapel or late Victorian period. It's Ripper. The study of Jack the Ripper, who was Jack the Ripper. Now, my interests within Ripperology, like all of ours, like Jonathan's talking about, they widen over time. It's almost like Whitechapel itself. You have Whitechapel Road, and branching off from that are all these little veins and arteries, right? Uh, these little byways you can go down. But Whitechapel Road itself, the beating heart, is who is Jack the Ripper? It's that question. Who is Jack the Ripper? So when I re- I referred to that uh, discovery that we've all probably experienced as what I called in my introduction, the base essence of Ripperology is the fact that these are unsolved crimes. It's I, I compare it almost to like uh, someone who becomes interested in the Titanic. They uh, generally would become interested in the Titanic because of big luxurious ship hit an iceberg and almost 2000 people died right but as they study the events they become interested in maybe how the ship was built and then they become interested in harlan and wolf 
and then they become interested in the sister ships and they become interested in the construction of the ship. Their, their focus shifts to other aspects that has nothing to do with the moment the ship hit the iceberg, right? Which is similar to what a lot of people who still fall under this ripperology umbrella are at to the point now. They no longer concern themselves with the identity of the murderer because their focus has shifted to, let's say, uh, the Jewish immigrant experience in the East End and the socialist politics or whatever that was going on in Burner Street. That the knowledge that they gain and possibly share with the Ripperology community is is a, a piece of the puzzle that's creating this larger picture. And so the way I see it is that a lot of someone who, a ripperologist, let's say, who says who says that they're, they're not into suspectology, sometimes are, would be considered elitist, right? But I tend to think maybe that their view is more not that they're elitist, um, but they've progressed beyond the base essence of trying to identify the murderer into more fruitful areas of study and research. And so possibly they look upon suspectologists as someone who have have yet to move beyond that initial interest in the case when they're they continue to be solely fixated on just the identity of the murderer does that make sense it it does uh but just to address that um i don't know that any of us are solely fixated on the identity of the murderer murderer this person like such as you describe and i know you're not speaking of a specific person but of a particular type of person within the community would that person even be considered relevant the the person who um, fixates. I, I, so everybody has their own particular area of interest. You know, some people are in it because they want to identify Mary Jane Kelly's. Some people are in it because they want to be the one who solves the crime. For me, I have said many, many times that I stay in Jack the Ripper because I came in with the question, oh, I saw a thing. I wanted to know who was Jack the Ripper. I did some brief research. I realized this is a question that is impossible to answer as is, you know, as Jonathan alluded to, but I stayed in because I'm interested in psychology of crime. That's my main focus is I like the psychology of crime and the psychology of, of how we deal with crime in life and, and whatever. And, and Ripperology is a great place to study that because you have all of these kinds of reactions and for people who are specifically focused on a suspect they vote some of them not all i am not going to say all but there is a specific type the ones who really believe in their suspect that they lose objectivity yes in the pursuit of of their goal of proving themselves right like I have to be proven right. And they lose objectivity in the pursuit of this aim. And so I agree with Tom in that 
that regard and these people seem to be the ones who talk the most get the most they're they're the ones out there beating their drum to to be taken because they need to be proven right they will never be proven right there will never be a consensus on who jack the ripper was it is an impossible thing to prove and it's sort of like so i do get what tom meant about like we nobody really takes those people seriously they're all we all kind of roll our eyes behind I, I mean i do it in front of their backs i have no shame but most people do it behind people's backs but those are the people who are out there promoting the subject and i do believe there is a detriment like i understand the idea that we draw people in if you're a tour guide if you run a website if you if you if you're selling books Increased interest in Jack the Ripper is a positive thing, but I also think, having seen it over the last 20-something years, that more eyes and more interest in it isn't necessarily a good thing if you're getting in the kinds of people who are like... I don't want to say not not interested in it for the right reasons, because what are the right reasons, but... you. There, there, there's this, we're a true crime area. And in true crime, there is a certain category of people that I think diminish the field as a whole. And I do believe that for a lot, suspect specific theories leads to bringing in those types of people. Well, it leads to bringing in all the people, though, the good and the bad. I mean, it brought us in. And I think there's a filtering process. A lot of people come in, and you know this, you run the casebook. You've seen people come in, sign up, they get a membership. Some of them never post. Um, some of them post wildly for a while and and then are just disappear. Their interest wanes and they they go away onto Zodiac or whatever is their next level. And then there's those of us who we stick around for whatever reason. And we become the researchers. We become the voices of the field for whatever reason. Um, I do want to mention something, how this episode came about, if it's okay. Uh, we were doing the Buckley episode a while back. And after that wrap, Jonathan, Allie, and I uh, were talking, and Jonathan started talking about suspectology. And he goes, you know, that would make a good episode. And I started thinking about it. I said, yeah, it would. You know, I said, but if we're going to debate the merits of suspectology, we obviously have to have some suspect authors on. And my mind went to who would I want on? And um, three names, four names that came right to mind were Christer, his book's popular, but also I've known him before he was a Lech Marian. And, uh, and Mick, Mick's a tour guide. That's a unique perspective that I don't have. Um, and then uh, Tracy, simply because, you know, I think Jacob the Ripper is one of the most interesting suspect books in years. And Steve, because he wrote Inside Buck's Row, which you, he would argue is is a reference book for Buck's Row. It's a, it, it is a very unique kind of work. But Steve proffers Aaron Kosminski as the Ripper, but he doesn't trumpet that, so to speak, which I think is uh, unique. But uh, long story short, uh, these are some of the best Ripper books uh, that to me in a lot of years for different reasons um but all of them except steve's put a suspect forward now me i'm weird i'm unique because i'm a, a suspectologist basically without a suspect so people read my books bank holiday murders uh ripper confidential and i have been lauded at times oh you're so great tom because you're not 
forcing a, a suspect down our throats. And, and I don't deserve that praise because the reason for that is I failed to find that suspect. Bank holiday murders is a suspect book, but I'm, I'm following a line of inquiry, which is uh, I prove, I believe, in the book that Pearlie Paul lied to the police, but she had knowledge of who was murdered. And then based on her behavior and Reed's comments, that she was lying to protect someone. I think that is a valid line of inquiry into who murdered Martha Tabram. And in my, I'm currently back to researching it, following that exact same line of inquiry, but it's going to a different place. That's very interesting. Uh, and along the way, I'm learning all kinds of new stuff, and I'll be able to treat readers to all kinds of new stuff they haven't seen before, which I think they'll find exciting, but make no mistake. My objective is I'd like to know who killed Martha Tabram, and that, which isn't necessarily the same thing as Jack the Ripper, but but it's all trying to answer the same question in the end. I would like to know who Jack the Ripper was. Um, Mick, as a tour guide, you take people around all the time. I mean, thousands. And I know this because I moderate the largest Facebook group on Jack the Ripper. When people come to join my group, I ask them questions like, what's the most recent Ripper book you've read? I've had many people name Mick's book and they're like, I took a tour and I bought this guy's book and now I'm hooked. Well, I'm interested, Mick. I have a question for you. Do you think if the case was solved, <clears throat> would people still do tours? Like what if the case was actually solved, would the interest still be there? I think it probably would. I also think if... Um... You know, if the case was definitively solved, I think with the way things are, lots of people would choose not to believe that anyway. But um, yeah, no, I think it would still be, maybe it might lose some of its appeal in the, if it was definitively proven who it was. But I think, I think the, uh, certainly from the, the Jack the Ripper tour um, angle, I get people all the time on the tour who were quite, who were completely unaware that the case wasn't solved when they came along. Like, so who was it? You know, they, well, they never caught him. I hear that all the time. So I think those people, at least, are actually coming along more for more than just the mystery of it. It's kind of, it's partly the um, the murders and the violence, but it's also uh, the, the Victorian period, the, the, the slums, the cobblestones, the gas lamps. I, I think all that kind of thing has an enduring appeal for people, sort of separate to just the identity of the murderer. I'm sure people would still want to go on a, Jack the Ripper to her, even if he did definitively prove who it was. Yes, no, here, if I may, uh, I'm thinking that uh, Mick Priestley is correct. I don't think the interest would wane, not from the outset, but I think that owes more than anything else to the fact that we have had a 136 or something like that year old mystery. That, that's, that's, that will guarantee that there will be an interest for some time. Then again, once we had the name, if we had the name, then I think some of the interest would go away over time, but it would take some time. But what I would like to do also is, is now is to take us a little bit back to what Jonathan and Alice said about how the case will never be solved. It can never be proven. What I would point to is that, and it's going out in a limb, I guess, but it cannot be proven that the case cannot be proven. If we know something, it is that new information will come along all the time, will be discovered by different research and so on. And every little bit that comes 
as a new part to 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 all of this will have some sort of impact. Yeah, and I want to mention too that we we refer to this as the case as like one case, but that one case encompasses many unique individual crimes. You could potentially potentially solve the murder of a single victim and that adds to our knowledge base. Uh, you know, we talk about the police, interest in the police. Why, you know, what is, what drives our interest in the police? I was thinking, I was talking to Jonathan uh, recently and I'm in PMs and I mentioned recent suspect books that I thought were great. And I said, Adam Woods Swanson. And the, re- the response is always the same. That's a suspect book. Would you call that a suspect book? Yes, I would. It is so much more than that. But there is a large chunk of it devoted to a very detailed and intricate study of Swanson's suspect, Kosminski. And I'm a guy who doesn't get it. I've been on the scene too long. I'm jaded, man. Uh, stuff doesn't excite me too much. But little discoveries, new discoveries, new facts, to me, are almost are, are as important and, and as giving me a new perspective, maybe. It's the same facts. I already know these things. But you go, look at, what if you look at it from this way? And that that offers a new perspective. And to me, that's just as valuable. That's what I try to do in my writing. And people tell me they like it. And I like it when other people give that to me. At the end of the day, Ripperology is an individual pursuit. Forensically identifying Jack the Ripper is impossible. Solving one or more of the individual crimes is is probably not a, 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 impossible but then again nothing's impossible uh i used and to that, think- that that's something i wanted to uh to bring up there's several reasons why i don't believe that the white chapel murders will ever be solved one is that no one will agree on who he murdered let's take buckley for example he was incarcerated during um some of the early murders he gets released in time for tabram well, if you believe that the murderer of Emma Elizabeth Smith was the same person who murdered Martha Tabram or murderers, then that would automatically exclude Buckley, right? Then you have the uh, Kosminski problem of being incarcerated during the later murders. I'm talking about beyond this canonical five. And then you have suspects whose whereabouts cannot be ascertained one way or another during any of the murders, except for possibly one. So because there's never going to be a consensus amongst ripperologists or the general public as to who to include and exclude, there will never be a person that, to everyone's satisfaction, will could be named as, quote-unquote, Jack the Ripper. Because you'll immediately have someone post on Facebook, well, no, what about Alice McKenzie? Or whatever. So that's the, my that's point number one. Um, secondly, is that, and we see this debated on, on the message boards all the time, there's this di- difference between what some people would say would be evidence to convict in a court of law versus evidence that would prove for history's sake, whatever that might mean, that the suspect was Jack the Ripper. And if we look at cold case investigations, kind of like what Tom alluded to with the DNA evidence, cold case crimes from a modern perspective still require the basic elements 
of a normal murder case that the detectives would be solving in real time up to a certain point, meaning that you would have to ascertain where the murderer was definitely in the moments prior to the murder and what the murderer was doing immediately after the murder. That go, that's true for how a cold case detective would approach the case as it is for a detective who's doing an ongoing murder investigation. Can we, can we make sure that the suspect was here? And what did he do in the immediate minutes and hours afterwards that will add to that guilt? It, in the absence of knowing that, which is that the suspect is dead, the witnesses are all dead, all of his family members are dead, and no one's around to establish any of these basic facts that would need to be presented in order to convict a suspect, the only thing that's left for a cold case detective is DNA. So those are three, of, and I'm sure other people can think of some more hurdles that I think the Whitechapel murder faces in, in ever being <clears throat> positively identified. Well, and not only that, but here's the overarching thing for me in terms of suspectology, which is, realistically speaking, what is the point of it? There is no victims left to, you know, like if we talk about victims, like if your mother's murdered and you're the child and the, the killer is caught 25 years later, there's still value in that. Um, there's nobody alive currently who knew any of these victims. It is an academic Demic curiosity more than it is any actual there's no benefit to the subject that we all study like let's just be real here if we're talking about this we are all pursuing a thing for which other than our own entertainment there isn't any benefit which is not saying it's bad there's no benefit to football but loads of people seem to enjoy that i'm not i'm not making a judgment on on our field but solving it is kind of a there's no practical benefit to it to begin with. And so people who expend great amount of energy, and I'm not talking about like general people who come up with a suspect, they write their thing, they go, they move on, they're fine. They're like, I could be wrong. I'm talking about like people who invest their identities in their suspect. And that, that brand, this is the branch of suspectology that I'm talking about. It's purely an ego-driven endeavor for like applause and accolades that one they're studying a field that's entirely too minute and small to ever get the kinds of accolades that, that that they're looking for but it's also just like it's never going to happen so if you really look at it suspectology in general in this subject is kind of a fruitless endeavor that we're all throwing a whole lot of time and effort and energy into something that doesn't really give us payout well you know i'm gonna there, uh, I want to say something here. Um, yeah, ego absolutely plays a part in it, a hundred percent. Particularly for suspectologists who have chosen to more or less latch themselves to their suspect. But again, it's an individual pursuit. You know, I I can't speak for anyone else. I'll tell you this too: there are some really good researchers. I feel like we've lost to a suspect. In other words, <clears throat> people who are a very insightful, have strong research capabilities, great minds. 
but they decide this person's Jack the Ripper and and they become, you know, put blinders on and they rather become unavailable to you. And I feel like we lose their talents because they're just obsessed with this one person. And and I feel that's a shame. I, I might have everyone has a, a bar that has to be met before you could go, okay, I think this person was Jack the Ripper. I do believe my bar is higher than many. When you're researching any suspect, it is, and I'm speaking to to future suspectologists, it is imperative to be your own worst critic, to go, okay, I like these things. I, I like this about him. Now, I need to go prove he's not Jack the Ripper. I need to be that guy who changes hats and goes, what are my problems with this suspect? And you have to keep an open mind. I'll use this as an opportunity to point out that the canonical five is a myth uh, born uh, of McNaughton. And that and what and who was McNaughton? He was a suspectologist. He had convinced himself uh, Druitt was the Ripper. Druitt committed suicide following the Kelly murder. Thus, he couldn't have killed Alice McKenzie. And so there we go. It's it, it, there is a fluidity to the victims. But I believe first you've got to have your own standards you follow and then apply the suspects to, and that takes a long time, uh, and then apply the suspects. Early on in my ripperological career, I became interested in Robert Deonston Stevenson, and that was fun for me. I was never convinced he was a ripper, but it was fun for me. I enjoyed looking at him. He's an interesting guy, and that world was interesting. And then I was like, this guy's not the ripper. Tom is telling us now, and I agree very much, that that we have to have some sort of standards where where, where we gouge our own suspects against reality, the reality of the world, the reality of others, and so on. And that automatically will bring with itself that some will do that in a better way, some will do it in a worse way, some won't do it at all. But I would very much deny that it has to do with ego, because there are, as I'm saying, very many different people who have different suspects and some of them i have no doubt are are ego driven but i wouldn't say that all of them are ego driven and i didn't i didn't didn't say all no no no. i think he was talking about me but i thought if i didn't make it if i did not make it clear i did say there you know i'm not talking about the regular people who have a suspect they write and and then but i do believe like the suspectologists that are sort of uh they're in it for the fame, and they're not I, in it for for. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't give as far as to say that they're, they're all egotistical and they're just in it for the thing because I think you have to have, have a look at every single writer presenting every single suspect and have a look is is this really well founded? Is this person who seems to be intelligent is just trying to to con us all and so on? Is it all about ego? A lot of those. That will have to be looked at from person to person all the time. And in that context, we can take a look at, for example, as we've been speaking about Edward Buckley. I remember that Jonathan Tai, he he came clear directly and and he said that I myself can 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 think of him as a possible suspect. I entertain that thinking. But Urian Meissen, who I work with, he for him, he is possibly a person of interest, but nothing more. 
does that make Jonathan Tide a more egotistical one? Or does yes. it? Does it? Does I it? think so. And then I'm not saying that as an insult. What I'm saying is he finds is guy, this guy's mine. He says, I'm interested in this guy because I found him. Perhaps he's Jack the Ripper. And I'm, mm. I'm going to Jonathan's mm. mouth. I'm using, mm. I'm using mm. Jonathan as a template here. But um, now, which is I don't, not to say Jonathan we don't never... like Jonathan Ty extremely much. But I can say I'm arrogant. I am very arrogant. I'm the most arrogant person you are ever going to meet. I revel in my arrogance. But so arrogance, don't necessarily say are different. Yeah, yeah. But you know, so there, there's we're not we're not bashing on people for it. We're just saying it is a fact. Ego is a fact. Oh, it is. In, in these things, it is. Um, for me to come forward in Ripper Confidential and say, I found a new Ripper victim. Can you not say there's some ego in that? Of course there is. Because here I am, this freaking American kid, saying I'm naming a Ripper victim that appears in absolutely zero of the literature prior to, prior to my book. Why That's do I... You're naming him for egotistical reasons. Or well, you're naming no, 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 no. It's not. The, I'm not saying the reason is ego. I'm saying but that has to play a part because why would I do that? Why yeah. would I ha why would I put in a book that I found a ripper victim that when I know this doesn't appear anywhere in in the literature now when I talk about egotism uh different people come to me and say I've got evidence that'll destroy Lechmere theory or I've got evidence that'll destroy Tumblety and I'm like why are why do you why why is that important to you that's egotism to some extent, but that's how they enjoy their hobby. And that's what this is for most of us. And the day where I go, I've solved the Ripper case. What I'm really saying is I've solved it for me. This is this is what I needed to feel fulfilled. And now I've done that. And then I'll cease to be relevant. But so far that hasn't happened. And I don't think, I don't know that it won't. I don't know. But what I hope to do is just provide new information, new perspectives that keep the field moving forward. I actually have a question, and I don't know if you guys care um, about, like, the reputation of Ripperology in, in the public's mind. When Tom mentioned the five, as, as many mean and nasty things that were said about Ripperology in the press by Hallie Rubenhold, one thing that it did focus on it, is it is it at least it, there was a chance that it made the general public aware that ripperologists were actually interested in the victims. So there, although she tried to paint us in the most negative light ever, it was a, it was an argument about how the victims themselves are portrayed in, in the historical accuracy, right? Which I thought was probably a positive thing. And then fast forward to today and if you read, um, so the book One Armed Jack came out, and um, and she it's names um, Hyam Hyams as the Ripper, and the Daily Mail picked it up, news outlets picked it up, even like weird magazines like Popular Mechanics run little clickbait articles on Jack the Ripper now. You know the whole Jack the Ripper has been sold. So for some odd reason, the uh, the press got a hold of the one-armed jack book and, and is now coupling it with the re-emergence of frederick aberlein's cane and so their stories that they're publishing here pretty recently are talking about aberlein's cane 
could the head carved on the cane be the face of Jack the Ripper? And oh, by the way, Sarah's book is about a guy who walked with a limp or whatever. So let's tie these two together. And has Jack the Ripper been solved? And by the way, Ripperologists are all nuts. And, you know, uh, yet another lead being led down. Could they be led down yet another dark alley? Stuff like that. Um, and uh, 40 and Times ran a review of One Arm Jack. That's headline was literally something like this year's Ripper, which is kind of true. Every year comes along, yeah. a new book comes out. It's become a joke, yeah. right? The hunt for Jack the Ripper in the popular imagination and in the press has become a joke. Do you all care about the public's perception of Ripperology or is that something... And, and Mick, being a tour guide, might have some unique insight into this as well. Because if the Daily Mail runs an article saying that ripperologists are all freaking out about Hallie Rubenhold or whatever, um, then I'm sure that's going to get brought up in his tours. So I guess um, one thing that I, I'd like to know is suspectology whether it be Win Weston Davies, who got front page news in the Daily Mail for his theory that was later disproven, um, and not a peep was ever mentioned in the press about it being disproven, but you know, every single book that comes along that is generally written, as Tom points out, by an outsider to the field, paints us all as a bunch of nut jobs and they're suspectology books. Would you concede that suspectology has a way of giving ripperology a bad name? It can. It can. And and, uh, and do you care what the public's perception of ripperology is? We get dragged in the press all the freaking time. Guiding the Jack the Ripper tour for the last 10 years, I've taken literally tens of thousands of people uh, around on the Jack the Ripper tour. And it's like whenever... There's the five comes out or, or whatever. It was it was um, naming Jack the Ripper. The Russell Ed was one before that, or a handful of other ones. Whenever there's a book comes out in the press, or certainly when Halle Rubenhold is slagging off the Ripperologist and whatever. When I meet people every day who are just random members of the public who have come along because you've heard a bit about it and you want to learn more about the case or whatever, nobody cares what those people say. Like uh, I've I've had lots of people uh, tell me that they've read the five. It's, I can't remember last time somebody, it, it's rare that somebody tells you how great it was and, you know, the thing she's, or the thing so-and-so solved it or whatever. After the Russell Edwards naming Jack the Ripper DNA fiasco, I had loads of people would say to me, oh, is it, is it true? Is it being solved? Is it the DNA? And it's definitive now. But nobody, um, I, I think the general public has completely accepted the fact that it's never going to be solved. It can't be solved. So when this new book comes out, um, it gets people interested again and they want to talk about what do I think about this new book and the findings? No, is it true? But yeah, I mean, I've not had anybody tell me, oh yeah, well, I read the five and I think all those researchers are horrible people or whatever. I think nobody cares. I think the, the vast majority of people are just interested in the case, partly for the murders, partly for the Victorian times and the slums and the misery and the poverty and the disease. But it's the mystery of it. And I think with very rare exceptions, I think people have just accepted that it's not going to be solved. It can't be solved. It's the ever-enduring mystery, and they just seem kind of amused, I suppose, when another one of these 
stories hits the news, like that Hyam Hyams thing. Uh, I went on the I went on the news and talked about that one. Uh, I don't think I've had a single person uh, mention that book to me on the tour. I don't think so. Like, yeah, I, I think that the I think something as well that I think people uh, understand as well is that with as opposed to other true crime cases like the the Ted Bundy case or even the Zodiac or whatever, there's something about Jack the Ripper that attracts not so much true crime people, but kind of unsolved mysteries people in a, in a Bigfoot, UFOs, mm-hmm. Bermuda Triangle kind of sense. And there's a lot of nonsense put forward for these people. Like when you said before, Jonathan, that, um, you know, there are no witnesses left alive. The police are all dead. The victims' families are all dead. People get away with talking such utter nonsense that you would never get away with talking about the Yorkshire Ripper case or something like that. And I think this draws in not just true crime people, but fantasists, Bigfoot conspiracy people that I think that um and I think everybody's kind of aware of that. I think people think that you can't necessarily believe everything you read about Jack the Ripper. And um yeah, I, I think the general public coming on, I don't think that they think better or worse of the Ripperologists or Ripperology. I I don't think they're overly concerned. I don't think that the uh reputation of Ripperologists has really been harmed in any way by any of these books or revelations have come out. I think the general public at large are just entertained or intrigued by the mystery. Uh, and and that's that. I, I don't, I think if, if there's another book comes out tomorrow saying that all the researchers are terrible and he's another suspect, I'm going to hear, oh, is it true or is it just more nonsense? And uh, yeah, I think people will still be interested in a hundred years time, regardless of what book might come out tomorrow. The, the interesting thing with what you say there is, is when you ask ask yourself, is it true? When they ask themselves, is it true or is it more nonsense? Because that mm. mirrors what very many think about ripperology. It is nonsense. It's a pile of nonsense, and that's mostly relies upon those three hundred suspects, more or less. I don't think they necessarily because, think because that this study of course, is three hundred suspects. Two hundred and ninety-nine has to be wrong. Mm. Perhaps three hundred. We don't, we don't well, know. Uh, but, but, I think, but I think we have a better through. understanding of that, though. Like me and you yeah, are aware yeah, yeah, that yeah, there's yeah. 300 yeah. suspects, but I think the random person just, uh, I think the random person yeah. certainly that comes on a tour goes, nobody knows who it is. And if mm. you were to mention Kuzminski, that's probably a new name to the overwhelming yeah. majority of people. So yeah. I think people just think they never found who he was. They'll never yeah. find out who he yeah. was. So as soon as somebody comes forward with one arm Jack, I think they're instantly skeptical. And, and that's- uh, yeah. Can the way I, I tend to answer Jonathan's question, whether it, it, I feel sad about uh, that view of reparologies. And yeah, because I, I don't think that that criticism applies to me. And I don't think it applies to Steve, to Tracy, and any anybody else who has written books with with conviction who really think uh, really study the case but when when we start speaking about Vincent van Gogh and so on as the Ripper then it becomes ridiculous so th- th- that's that's well much of the criticism is aimed at, and the rest of us we feel a little bit sad about it because it's unfair in that in that way I agree entirely what Krista's saying there which may surprise Krista even um, I'm not concerned about what people are saying. I'm upset sometimes by the impression that's given of the serious researchers like like ourselves. And because of you get the 
mystery people, the fringe people with their wacky theories, we all get tired with the same brush to a certain extent. And we're all seen to be not serious researchers. And I find that upsetting because we all put a lot of time in, let's be fair. We put a lot of effort in. Well, yeah, like that, that, that possible criticism, though, would only, like, if the book comes out and then there's something in the, I mean, who is it making this criticism? I find it's not the general public. I find it, if Holly Rubenhold criticises the uh, the ripperologist, that the criticism is from her, there's only really us hear it. I think the random person in the street doesn't really put much weight in what she says anyway. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of feel like our... <laughs> Our uh, reputation is intact, really, to anybody that matters. Yeah, I kind of, I agree. I think it needs a balance. Uh, uh, you know, the majority of you have seen me grow within the referology. My initial one was Hyam Hyams of pre this year. Research showed that it wasn't him as a suspect. So we are also aiding in getting rid of suspects put, that are put forward. The DNA with Russell Edwards little known fact it was actually me who proved that discrepancy and like you said the fallout to that was horrendous how dare I even query a microbiologist things like this who am I but you've got to balance it out I know who I am so does it matter what they think to an extent you know when you do a book you've got to expect when you're putting your opinions forward you've got to expect there's going to be criticisms and negative reactions as well as the positive that drive you forward you you can't really look at it as something fully negative if that makes sense you need the criticism to bring your passion forward at times i I think it must also be acknowledged that that's this sentiment from people who think it's all nonsense and all ridiculous is to a large degree based on the fact that the case is unsolved. Because if it was solved, there would never be all of these theories and there would never be all of these quibbles, there would never be all of these uninteresting suspects, suspects, you know, not real suspects, but people put forward as suspects. I don't know if I agree with that because I, I, so I, I watch a lot of trials. I mean, a lot of trials, trials where people, there is a definitive suspect there is evidence that is definitive against the suspect there is a conviction of the suspect and i mostly i watch trials because i'm interested in it but nowadays all of the trials are like on youtube and you can watch uh, people's comments on the trials and the cases and even when there is a definitive answer i mean only fools would think there was not a definitive answer you have fools who think, oh, well, no, it was a conspiracy. They didn't, it was this, it was that, it was the other thing. And like the most famous recent example of that was like, I don't know if any of y'all were involved in the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial, but like, it doesn't matter what the evidence shows. Sometimes people's opinions will supersede basic emotion. I've always said like, I'm a person of logic and I believe emotion always triumph or or emotion always overwhelms logic in 98% of the cases. Like someone, if someone feels something is true, that often matters more 
than whether you know something is true, if that makes sense. Like it's it's like it's the difference between religion and faith and and not being religiously based. Like if you believe a thing is true, facts are irrelevant. So I don't necessarily know that solving it would just look uh, I swear I had a point when I started this, but it is long <laughs> gone in the soup of my brain. <laughs> I, I think we get what you're saying. I warned you my head was killing me and that sense was not going to be had today. Sorry. There was a point there. I hope you kind of got what I meant somewhere yeah. in that. But I, I think my perspective is a little different from Jonathan's as he's looking at it and, and, and he's understandably frustrated at the nonsense said about us by people who don't know us. Um, I look at it as like Hallie Rubenhold. Yeah, she said a lot of bad things about us and we're all mad at her and this and stuff. But what if her holding that mirror up makes ripperology a little less misogynistic uh, in the long term. What if it, her book brings a lot of more interested women in the field? Um, Tracy was mentioning to me in PM the other day that when she was a newbie coming on the case book, she was nervous about posting. I think that's because there was a lot of men flexing their verbal muscles on there and it didn't. And this was years ago and this didn't necessarily uh, you know, create an environment to where uh, uh, certain folks would feel welcome. I would like to think that uh, we could take a positive out of the Holly Rubenhold experience and not write off everything she and others said and maybe look inward and go, can we do better? I don't know. That's my perspective. So not, not a bad thought. I, I would very much welcome more women into reperology. It's, a, it's well, very one-sided. Well, my, my, my introduction to the case, I've said this before, was I came on the case book and I started posting and I'd posted like two things. And uh, I had somebody quote Nietzsche's uh, lovely little sentiment that uh, women were the evolutionary equivalent of cows. David Radcliffe. Like David, I wasn't going to name him, you know, he's had dead. It yeah, had to it be. It was totally David Radka, um telling me that basically I, I was I was a, I was cattle. And I should be off with myself. And that went over about as well as you could expect it would have with me. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a boys club when I started. And I don't think that that's changed. Does that really have anything to do with the, the subject matter of ripperology, though? Or is it because it's an online forum? I mean, I feel um, like if you were in any other subject, if you went, if you went and posted an opinion about... Anything at all in an online forum. I think you're going to get some clown wants to say things like that because they're online and that's what idiots do. But that yeah. that is that was the home of ripperology. Ripperology as a pursuit is 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 only about thirty years old, mm. um, and it's started with, it started with Facebook. I want to yeah, say I'm sure I'm sure the guy that says that is signed up to other different subjects online, and I bet he posts similar things to similar people about completely different subjects. But I do think there is a distinction between and. Uh, like so one of the rules on casebook is um recognize the venue where you're posting and when you're posting on a site that's about murdered women the ultimate expression of misogyny and femicides which people don't even recognize femicides as being like a legitimate uh subject of homicide wherein this person was killed because they're a woman. That is why they were killed. So when you have that as the field that you are currently discussing or, or you're, you're speaking under, and then you go on top of that and start saying sexist and misogynistic things, 
there becomes a not saying that it's ever right to say sort of sexist and misogynistic things but as a as a community you do you are going to get that reputation if it's sort of allowed within your community depending upon your subject like gaming which is a huge male dominated space they're misogynistic and sexist up the living wazoo but the entire umbrella of their community isn't necessarily distinctly about sort of the ultimate expression of misogyny which is femicide and so it's sort of the combination of those two things acting together that will shape the public perception of our field being that are the ultimate thing we are discussing here is the murder of women it becomes sort of a words whatever that's a um, remarkable point you just made ali and i i yeah i mean I, i'm blown away i think that uh you've really just you've compared us to another group where misogyny is well known but then you've pointed out our underlying subject matter is femicide and i hadn't really yeah that's an interesting and, and powerful perspective it, it, it's, it's it's another line of salt and another another subject but this this leads me a little bit into what I, I mean. We we I often read when people are trying to describe the Ripper that he hated women. I sometimes read that he hated prostitutes, and that has made me think a little bit about the question: What do we actually know about the Ripper? Because when and if we are trying to identify some sort, some type of suspect, then we will probably do it by way of comparing him to what we think we know about the Ripper. Meaning that if we think we know that the Ripper hated prostitutes and we find somebody who did hate prostitutes, we tend to think, okay, he's a good, he's a good, he's a good candidate for the Ripper's role. But when I try to dig down to the bottom of that hole. I, 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 if I return to Buckley once more, it's, it's a lot, a lot is said about how he was a very violent man. And then I ask myself, was the Ripper a violent man? Which sounds like a very ridiculous question because we know he killed women violently. But what I actually aim at there is that when we take a look at many of the so-called classical cases, Bundy, Ridgeway, Rifkin, all of those people, they were not known as violent men. They were not overtly violent. They did not beat up people in the street the way Buckley did. It's another kind of violence. So we cannot, we cannot even say that when we have a violent man, we have a good candidate for the Ripple Throne. Very, very little remains if we are asking ourselves what kind of a man was the Ripper? Well, I think well, it was somebody, somebody like Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway as well. Gary Ridgway doesn't go out killing prostitutes because he hates prostitutes or because he hates women. He does it because he's a sexually motivated deviant in the same way that Jeffrey Dahmer doesn't go killing all men because he hates men. He's a, he's a, he's a sexually motivated, motivated deviant who finds this very arousing and sexually erotic to do this. I always, I always think, I often hear um, like people say, oh, well, yes, the, the Ripper must have hated women or hated prostitutes, but you wouldn't say that Gary Glitter does the things that he does because he hates kids. It, it, no, he does no, that no, because no. He, he's a sexually motivated pervert. So with someone like Ridgeway, 
for example, or, or Jack the Ripper over, but Gary Ridgeway can drive down onto the SeaTac strip in the red light zone, and he knows it, it's his main target is to act out his sexual fantasies with a with a woman. It's just it, it's, it's kind of getting off topic there, but I always find that yeah, I often hear people say, "Oh, well, he he must have hated women or hated prostitutes," but no, he, it's not a case of him hating women; it's a case of him being a sexually motivated pervert. And as a heterosexual man, that's the kind of person he wants to do it with. Like with Gary Ridgway, I'm, I can't say I could say it one way or another if he was a violent man in other aspects of his life. I'd have to look that up. But it's um, it, it's he doesn't really commit the act because he's violent or he's angry or he's full of hate. He does it because he's a pervert. He's, he's a deviant. And his desire to commit these offences reaches a point where he's uh, thought about it and fantasized about it and played it through in his head so much he reaches a point where his desire to act out these offenses and receive his sexual gratification from doing so outweighs his worries of being caught or or whatever so yeah it's just uh, i always think that he, the reason he does it isn't because he hates women or prostitutes it's because he's a pervert and those people offer an avenue in which he can express his sexual fantasies Richway was known as a nice guy helping his neighbors out, and uh, he had a marriage where his wife said he was the best man she had ever met. Mm. And he's the, also a pervert. Mm. Yeah, but they mm. fly under the radar. That's my point. Mm. But they didn't fly under the radar. And so violence is not something we can rely upon, at least not yes. overt violence, yes. as, as, as a point or two. Now we got to rip it. Go back to what Jonathan was saying. By doing that, you would be excluding, say, Emma Smith, Emily Horsnell, victims who uh, hate and violence, pure, unadulterated violence, were a motivating factor uh, in their killings. And you would start with Nichols or possibly Tabram, although I would say Tabram is a gray area there because uh, certainly there was a lot of anger and violence uh, focused on her. And you would, but that would, that what you're saying that allows you a framework within victimology of here's the victims that fit into this framework. I don't know who the Ripper's victims were, but I will note that what happened to Emma Smith and what happened to Polly Nichols are very different. And then, the, but there's certain underlying similarities. If if I was to comment on what you said, Tom, I think we we, sim- we simply tend to take a look at the different pieces in, in, in the puzzle and we, and we try to see what fits best and then some will say okay that's your bias and some some will say okay that that is a fit and so on I, I on the whole that that is how one must try to look upon it how do the pieces fit together but of course we must warn about thinking that if a killer does it like A in his first exploit and like A in his next, that doesn't mean he won't do it like B in the third attempt. Right. There, there can always, always be great differences, and, and so we cannot rule him out. And, and I, I mean, Smith is interesting chronologically and she's interesting geographically. But overall, if I was to choose, I would, I would say no, I don't think she was... She may perhaps have been part, just as I sometimes think about Tabram, that she, she may have formed part of an inspiration ground for the killer. Um, and I then, I then reason, of course, as most of you will know, that I, I think he committed both the Ripper murders and the Tim Storson murders. 
And I think, in a way, the Ripper murders may well have been part of his narcissism. He found out, perhaps, if he didn't kill Tavron, and if he didn't kill Smith, he, he saw that, that they got lots of coverage in the press, and that would have interested him if he was a narcissist. And so that may be part of the reason. An influence. Yeah, well, of course, Smith didn't get any press, really. There's very no, little... No. Tabitha did get a lot of press. So, so, a lot of press. That's why I, I think I sometimes I, I, I tend to think she was a Republican. Of course, I cannot prove it. Right. But if she wasn't, then I think she may well have been part of the inspiration for him taking his murders to the streets due to narcissism, due to wanting to get that press coverage. But now returning to what Jonathan's original topic was, suspectology, Try to imagine the field if suspectology started to take a backseat to other lines of inquiry and research. What what does the literature of the field look like now? And and these these Jonathan mentioned there's a lot of people who've progressed beyond suspectology. What, I read it what, like... is their, what is their body of work? What is the literature that we can point to existing now? And uh, I think of you know uh, uh, Phillips' uh, book on the the photograph. Um, I think of Robert McLaughlin's book, um, Chris Scott's wonderful book, Well, the Real Mary Kelly. These are, you know, uh, small, these are some examples of literature related to the case that made absolutely zero attempt or discussion of suspects. Uh, News from Whitechapel comes out, um, comes to mind. Dave Yost's book on the Stride murder which just put that under the microscope. There is a small body of literature here. I think most of it exists in the form of articles in, in journals, but how do, can anyone else offer an opinion on, on this, this subject? What does the field look like if suspectology took a backseat? What is, what is ripperology? Well, I think you're, you're already seeing some of these books going back all the way to Kate Amin with her talk and article granted it was a talk and article on um, Jack as a feminist issue you do have other books um, like the guests at last month's Whitechapel Society meeting who write about the Whitechapel murders but more in the context of how uh, Victorian prostitution was treated at the time and the Whitechapel murders effect on that. Then you have uh, articles about women's self-defense. I mean, really, the broader items. You have Swanson's book that would be, although you consider it a suspect book, um, Adam Wood Swanson. No, that's some, a part, portion of the book, yeah. Is, is, is something that looks at a more um, specialized area within ripperology you know there are there are books that don't necessarily have to emerge from ripperology yeah. that mainly i think the the what you were seeing in the present day is um works approaching it from more of a feminist perspective and i know um there's folks like gracie bain who looks at uh jack the ripper from a cultural perspective and the portrayals of victims, uh, the Jack the Ripper victims in popular culture. There's been books about the Jewish socialist movement in the East End. I think it, it 
there's an opportunity for ripperology to branch more into that type of social history as opposed Obviously, to that, being that, that true are, crime. There are, of course, lots of books that do not have anything at all to do with Jack the Ripper, but describe the social conditions of the East End of London and so on. And so they kind of seamlessly float into each other, and they're all of interest for the case. But I cannot see a future where that would be the only type of books written about the Ripper case. Oh, it's I don't a, see a time when that will happen either. No, no. Um, and, but, but of course, it's 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 always good. We're always interesting if if it branches out in, into other subjects and other smaller areas, and and all all of these parts will carry weight. Every new discovery carries weight. And when I, when I mentioned uh, the diminishing importance of suspectology, I was referring to within the field of ripperology itself that fewer and fewer people will be suspectologists and more researchers will be taking kind of the approach that Urian has taken has been mentioned earlier and you know folks like Chris Scott who research personages in in and around Ch Whitechapel without the goal of necessarily capturing Jack the Ripper. Do you believe that we in the field have an inherent distrust of people who write a book pushing a particular suspect because there is such a well-established history and precedent of people who are there to promote a suspect, twisting, distorting, manipulating, omitting facts that disprove their theory? It would be extremely strange if that didn't. We are our own worst course. critics. Yeah. We are police ourselves. And certainly myself, too. It has shaped my way of approaching the material, of trying not to be dogmatic, trying to be careful uh, with my hand, letting the reader know as much as possible when I'm presenting an opinion versus this is a historical fact. Uh, one of the interesting things about our pursuit is when we, we talk about historical facts, what am I talking about? I'm talking about a press report. I'm talking about a police report. These things are only facts in the sense that they exist and we can quote them. They're not necessarily facts. When Swanson prepared his October 19th report on that has Schwartz that we all quote, what is he doing? He's writing to his bosses to cover his ass. That's what that report is. It's a report prepared for his boss it's going to have his personal biases in it. And it's important to kind of keep that in mind and not necessarily take it as hardcore fact. So it's very, and, and we're working with just pieces of the puzzle. That's all we've got. Um, but that's also part of the challenge and the fun of it. Um, what Jonathan is saying is absolutely true. Uh, you know, the researchers, Chris Scott, Deborah Arif, uh, Keith Skinner, uh, unfortunately, I can't, you know, I mean, these are the top names, um, but I agree with Jonathan. I would like to see us attract more uh, researchers, like re like researchers, man. And I don't know, you know, there's, and I said earlier, we lose good researchers the moment they become obsessed with a suspect, they get married to a theory, we lose them from the field. And that's always a shame. And then, but then another um, thing that we'll always see also are those books that would have been good, like The Fox and the Flies would be one example. 
Um, you have a book that's really good and a really good East End history with a Ripper suspect tagged on to the end of them. Um, there was a recent book about the Elizabeth Cass case, the woman who was arrested for prostitution. Jack the policeman. Right. So from what I understand, I didn't bother to read it, but um, from what I understand, the author, uh, you know, if you're wanting to read a book about the Elizabeth Cass case, that's the book you to read. But unfortunately, he then goes on to accuse the policeman who arrested Elizabeth Cass of being Jack the Ripper, almost as if the publisher tags these things on at the end. Any book that anyone wants to write about Whitechapel in the late Victorian period is going to be saddled with this burden of having to also accuse them of being Jack the Ripper. It it takes the fun out of it for us too, you know, because the Fox and the Flies is a great book until he started mentioning Jack the Ripper. Well, um, you know, I, mean, I think it's a good book and uh, regardless, because that what that's what motivated him to write it. Then we have that material because of that motivation. Jack the Policeman's not a good Ripper book. Many, most suspect books suck. The vast majority of them suck. Uh, again, we're our own worst critics. I'm not impressed by the old school way of doing a, a cookie cutter. Here's here's the history of the victims as cold from A to Z. And then tag my suspect argument at the end. Jack the Policeman's 120 pages. It was the, the guy wanted his name on a book. It's not a terrible book. It was interesting about the cast case. It is what it is. Most suspect books are like that. And then, you know, at the end of the day, it's a hobby. It's fun Try not to, you know, just have fun. If a book sucks, stop reading it, move on to another one, or just listen to what other people have to say to guide you to what what books might be worthwhile for you. Um, but that's all it is, you guys. It's I think I have fun with this with this stuff. I read a lot of stuff that hurts me when I I'm researching uh, St. George's in the East right now, and I'm reading terrible stuff from from the 1800s that uh, impacts me more now than I think it did when I was a cocksure 20 something year old about the human condition. And what's scary is I look at that and I'm seeing, I look and then I turn on CNN or something and I'm seeing the same thing today. So there is something vital and viable to what we do, regardless of our motivations and the end result. And hopefully uh, you just, you know, you're putting out something that you can be proud of and that other people can get value from, but not necessarily agree with you. Yeah, there you go. Does anybody know the name Robert Coombs? Robert Coombs was a 13-year-old boy who knifed his mother to death in 1895 in Plaistow, in the East End of London. So we have a woman dead by sharp violence. We have a killer. We have the East End. And we could, of course apply lots and lots of research to that case too it gives all the same social implications and so on and it, it was established that Coombs read all of these uh, st stories that were penny penny dreadful recall like that um small magazines describing murders and so on and, and he was probably very infatuated with jack ripper murders in the six years when they were committed the question one might ask is why are we all studying the ripper case why are nobody of us studying the robert coombs case because it would have the distinct advantage of having it solved we don't have to deal with suspectology at all publicity because hmm? the ripper case was because the ripper case was very public 
was there at the start of the tabloid press. That's why the interest started. Why do not, do not people change to the Robert Coombs case if they dislike suspectologists very much or any other case? It's interesting because it's set in the exact same setting in the exact same time. Lots of interest, same setting, knife violence, dead woman, 1895, and nobody cares. I think for me, the suspect base, going from the suspect, and Ali just mentioned earlier on, it's the why, the puzzle of it, the query, the psychology. Yeah. What, why did this happen? How did this happen? What changed because of this happening? And that is what piques interest at times. Answers aren't there. Hmm. What, what, what I would like to to add there is I, I think that's that's very correct. And what many people say about suspectologists is that they they always ask the same question. They're always interested in who was it, who did it. In actual fact, I'm not all that interested in who did it as I am in what was he. Why did he do it? Exactly. Yeah. A name, a name is just a name, and 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 that adds nothing. The interest lies, of course, in what he was, not who he was. Yeah, I think a lot of us stand by that. That is what drives you forward. That is what brings names forward, suspects forward, and the interest in proving who they are, where they were, why they did it. Just as we can easily disprove them, you know, we have as many suspects disproven as what we brought forward, and. To me, exactly, Crystal, what you've said, that is what it's about. Well, what I've been curious about lately in my research is the development of the detective force in London. Keeping in mind, the, the, the idea of a detective force was pretty new, and it, it and they dealt mostly with street fights, with domestic disputes, standard crime, you know, receiving stolen goods. Jack the Ripper, that put them to the test, nearly brought them down. Certainly, several of them, their careers ended as a result of this. And due to the unique quality of a, of a, of a press, I mean, the star was brand new. And they were hungry. And they were following detectives. And they were following coppers and reporting this. And there, that is right there. That's an area of study that we are exposing ourselves to. Even if that's not our objective, we're learning this. And I'm starting to look at it and go the evolution of a detective force, Jack the Ripper offers an insight to that that nothing else in the world could, nothing. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for coming on the show today. We've had Christopher Holmgren, Tracy Ianson, Mick Priestley, Tom Westcott, and Steve Blommer talking about suspectology. I'm not sure that we resolved anything, and Jack the Ripper is still at large. So the case hasn't been solved today either. But this is Jonathan Mangus with Ali Ryder. And I want to thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next time.